Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we started a series here at City Church um, called Knowing God in the Psalms. And if you've been here for any length of time, you'll know that every couple of years we do a series in the Psalms. And, and so we're taking a break from the Mark series. We'll begin that again towards the end of the summer. But why do we do that? Well, in part it's because the Psalms are some of the most beloved literature. And, and I say that not just as a Christian, but, but people who aren't even particularly religious love the Psalms. I think it's because in our, in our modern world where we've, we've created modern psychology, this is the original psychology, the Psalms. This is the original place where, where as we look at modern psychology and say, oh, we've discovered the inner life, the inner world. We say, well, no, thousands of years ago it was already done. These are our men and leaders in, in Israel who, who, as they thought about the world outside, they looked inside to say, God, where are you? And they're wrestling with their emotions. There's a great book, by the way, by Trimper Longman and Dan Allender called Cry of the Soul. And it's sort of a, a navigation through the Psalms regarding emotions, different emotions. And I want to read you just a little section of what they said here. This is regarding the Psalms. They call it poetry, appropriately so. They say this, Poetry reaches to the realm beyond the world of sight and sound to reveal what our senses long to see and hear. It is a language not so much of the sublime, but of the truly real, a reality that, that cannot be grasped through scientific or theoretical precision. Theological propositions are necessary for understanding truth, but truth is ultimately relational, and relationship is the domain of poetry. Hence why this series is called Knowing God. And I think this sermon in particular, this psalm in particular, is really appropriate here because I think we typically see in the modern world two, two extremes that, that lead us away from God's heart. Number one, surprisingly, you might be surprised to hear this, it's religion. And when it comes to the emotions, sometimes in religious circles, particularly conservative evangelical circles like ours, there can be a minimization of some of the tougher emotions. You know what I'm talking about? You know, where don't be angry, right? Don't let them see your fear. Wear a smile on your face. Sometimes even modern Christian music can make that mistake where, where there's, not, there's not value given to some of the quote-unquote more darker emotions, anger and fear and things like that. But you can make the other mistake as well in a more secular world where you know, there's no containment whatsoever on emotions. I remember right after we started the church, the very first person to ever come to faith in our church was this man who then, just a few months later, got married. And six months or so after this took place, uh, the wife reached out to me and she said, hey, can we meet for marriage counseling? I said, of course. I said, what's up? And they said, well, it's, it's the counselor that we were seeing. It was a secular counselor. I said, what happened? I said, well, we were meeting with this counselor. And my husband was really upset about something. And the counselor just said, just let her have it. Just let her have it. Vent. Whatever it was. And, and uh, 
And so he did. But the problem was, especially on the other side of dropping the F-bomb and just, just saying all these different things about her, vicious things, she said, there's no containment. Because in a secular worldview, you just vent. That's it. You see, and she said afterwards, I was so humiliated by what happened. It made sense to me. See, the Psalms have the answer for us. It's not to hide our emotions. You know, no venting allowed. Nor is it the other extreme, where it's like, there's no containment whatsoever. Here's the answer. Pray your emotions. Let yourself vent, but be contained with the person who can handle your emotions the most. Knowing God, God himself. That's what we're doing in this series. And what we're doing specifically today is looking at fear. I would suggest this is the most primal emotion of all. In fact, a lot of people would say this in both therapeutic circles and outside therapeutic circles, that if you really want to understand anger, if you really understand some of these other emotions, you go to fear. You see, what's behind all that? What is the foundation? What's at the core? And what we see in the psalm here with David is someone who wrestles with fear and comes out on the other side saying, I know who my God is. So what I want to do this morning is I really want to look at a number of things here. First, contra religion. How do we acknowledge reality? How are we safe with God to acknowledge reality? But contra secularism, how do we remember a greater reality beyond the world that we see, including the assault that we face? And then finally, we're going to conclude by saying, what do we do with that? And the answer is going to be one word, move. And I'll explain as we get there what I mean by that. So let's hear the first thing, and that is, how do we acknowledge reality? Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, of the 150 Psalms, 16 of the Psalms have historical context that we at least know about. This is one of them. David has just committed sin, adultery, with Bathsheba. And if you know, if you remember that story, it's in 1 Samuel. If you know that story, what happens is it, it sets in motion a series of events. And so the, the first one is that he, in order to cover up his sin, he ends up murdering uh, the wife of Bathsheba, a man named Uriah. Well, that eventually sets forth an, another chain reaction of events that lead to rebellion within his own kingdom. And if you know the story, it's Absalom, one of his sons, in rebellion, uh, puts David on the run. David is the king of Israel, is now on the run. And we hear it three times here in these first two verses, three times the word many. You know, it's been said that, that uh, if someone says to you, they're all out to get me, it's paranoia, unless it's true. And this is a case where it seems to be true. Everyone, many, are out to get me, he says. And we know this from the historical context that, that David had very few friends with him. David felt very vulnerable. David probably felt, as the king of Israel, think about that, as the king of Israel, he felt very alone because there's an assault, and this assault is not metaphorically after his life. This is truly after his life. Absalom wants to reign, and he will kill his father, and nothing will stop him. Now, here's what I want to do now. I want to talk about the anatomy of fear. Because I think David's story is a great picture for a lot of us in this room. Some of you right now are experiencing an assault. You know, it may be in your workplace. You're saying, I'm looking for work. I don't know if I'm going to get back to my work. It's in your marriage. It's something. Some of you are experiencing that right now. And I guarantee you that this. You did in the past at some point, And you will in the future. And so how do we deal with fear? And by the way, there's a, there's a type of fear, it's called healthy fear, that, that I'm not talking about now. The healthy fear is a sort of reverent fear. It's like when that child is told, don't touch the stove, and they touch it anyway. And the next time they go in the kitchen, guess what? They have a reverent fear for the stove when it's on. 
in particular. That's a different kind of fear. But I'm talking about the fear that paralyzes our soul. The kind of fear that, that, that brings us to a place where we don't feel like we can sometimes even function in the world. So what do we mean by that exactly? Well, let me say a couple things about that. Number one, I think that a lot of times the word anxiety, the word that we often will use, is really the same thing as fear. In fact, in some ways I'm going to say that they're the same. What is the difference between fear and anxiety? It's maybe this. Fear is when you're facing uh, you know, an event. It's right there in your face, and you, you lack courage maybe or something like that. Anxiety is that feeling that you have that maybe isn't about the event per se, but it's that, that existential feeling of dread. You know what I'm talking about? Well, there's a poem that was written in 1946 by W.H. Auden, an English poet. It was called The Age of Anxiety. And it was the, the world after coming out of World War II was an age of anxiety, he said. But I want to suggest to you that's our world today, especially post-pandemic. We live in a world where, I mean, the stats prove it out. I mean, especially for our young people. As parents, you know this. That the, the, the statistics are that anxiety is through the roof for our young people. Depression, things related to that, you know? But I think as adults, we can say, no, that's my story as well. And there's a thing related to that that I want to speak to. And I've mentioned this before, but if you're brand new, you wouldn't have heard this before, so it bears repeating now. We live especially, I think, in a state of what's sometimes referred to as hyper-arousal. And, and I was literally not even looking for articles on this, but literally yesterday I stumbled upon an article online about this very thing. And it said that post-pandemic, we're living in a day and an age where we constantly live in a state of anxiety, a state where we're, as it says, quote, on the edge all the time. And I didn't realize just how much I live in that world until I went on sabbatical last summer. So again, I'm, a year later, I'm so grateful that you guys gave me the opportunity to take a few months off and to rest. And it was about a week into my sabbatical, so about 13 months ago. I was doing a silent retreat here in Atlanta, and it was a week long. And, and so I thought kind of going into the sabbatical, I was a, pretty much at a place of rest. And then I woke up on the first day of my retreat, and I felt like a completely different person. I mean, I'm, I'm, I wish, I'm trying to do the best that I can to describe in words how I felt. But I realized that up until that day, I had been in this state of anxiety, and I didn't know it. That's how hyperarousal works. A lot of times you don't even know that you're in a state where you're on edge, where you're kind of, kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop. You know what I'm talking about? Like you, you may be on vacation, things may be going well for your kids, but you just had this sense of dread almost. You had this, this sense like something's going to go, maybe it's the headlines in the news, maybe it's something that's in your life, but there's something that you're feeling. And it wasn't until I went on sabbatical that I realized that I've been living in the state. And so fear and anxiety may not even be something that you can see, is my point. It's just the state of the soul sometimes, being human, living in a modern world like ours. And I think very importantly here, it matters what you believe about God. Let me give you two examples of that, or two instances of that. I don't want to presume, by the way, just because you're here at City Church today, that you believe what the psalmist believes, that you believe that there is a God. Or that there is a God that, that cares for you. And so let me speak to you for a second if that describes you. When you come to a place of fear where you're feeling like you're being assaulted, let me, let me ask you to think about something. If there is no God, if this world is all there is, what does that mean about the state of your existence? It means that the assault, the thing that threatens your very existence, will snuff you out. It may not be physical, like literally to snuff out your life. It could be your reputation. 
It could be your, your sense of self, whatever it is. But that can be snuffed out just like that. And with that, you're gone. And so what does that mean for you? It means that you must fight with all that's within you to defeat the assault against you. Because if it defeats you, you're nothing. That's the world that for a lot of people in the, in the modern world live in. There's a sense like, like this fear, I must defeat it because I'm snuffed out without a defense. But I think for a lot of us in here, you would say, well, that's not me. I believe in God. I even believe that God is, is animate and, and alive and, and there's, you can build an intimate relationship, that sort of thing. But I want to say this to you and to me as well. It's in verse 2. Going back there, it says this, Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. See, David loved God. But what, what his enemies were saying was like, God's done with you. There is no God, really in reality. Like, forget about this, this apparition that you're thinking of. There is no God. Clearly, if there is, God has left you behind. I think for a lot of us in here, when we face something that feels like it's going to end us, our career, our marriage, our relationships, whatever it might be, what do you feel in those moments? Sometimes we feel as if God has abandoned us. Let's be honest. Because the psalmist, and not just here, by the way, David, plenty of other places, because he wrote like a third of the psalms, plenty of the psalms, it shows David sometimes felt that way. He felt sometimes like, God, where are you? He very honestly vented. God, it feels like you don't care right now. And I think that one of the temptations within that is to feel like, as if I said, God does not care. Listen to what James May, he's a commentator on this particular psalm. He said this, No salvation for him and God is a mortally dangerous weapon against the soul. It has an ally in every crevice of doubt, anxiety, and guilt in the heart. And so whether it's a secular worldview, whether it's a Christian worldview, we can find ourselves doing this, fixated on our fear. Fixated on our fear. What do I mean by that? There's a great place in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, where it says that, uh, that the, the God's people are waiting to go in the promised land. And remember, the promised land, what was it? Land of milk and honey, remember? And so they're waiting, and remember, because of their sin, they got delayed by uh, about 40 years. And so they're, they're finally now, finally, they're on the edge. They can, they can look and they can see on the other side of the Jordan River, the promised land, Canaan is waiting for them. So there they are. And so they, they want to do some scouting. And so remember, they sent 12 spies to scout out the land. And remember, they all came back. Now, one of the spies named Caleb gave a report. He says, listen, it's a land of milk and honey. It's exactly what God said it was. Um, and, and let's take that. We, God has given this. Everything he said is true. God has given this to us. But do you remember what the other 11 spies said? Now, you've got to read the whole, and for the sake of time, I can't do this, so I'm just going to paraphrase. But for, for verse after verse after verse, they counter Caleb. And every single time they counter him by saying this, but there are giants in the land. Remember this? There are giants in the land. And if you look at it, you'll see that the phrase, the giants land, giants land, giants land, that's called fixation. And let me tell you, we all do it as well. I do it. Let me tell you, when... There have been times where I know that, that there's something that I've got to deal with. It's a work situation. It's a family situation. And it's, you know, it's a Sunday and Monday's coming for me, right? And so, you know, I, I know, or, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And maybe you have the same experience that I do the night before. I'm laying in bed, and all I can think about 
is the conflict. You know what I'm talking about? Tell me I'm not alone. Let me hear an amen on that one. Yeah, okay. So, so I'm laying in bed and I'm waiting, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm perseverating. It's a word that I discovered from my wife. Love that word, perseverate. It's just ruminate and fixate on something right there. And so I perseverate. You know, I can lay there. And, and some of you will say, man, I've done that all night long, right? But it, and it robs you of your life. It robs you. And let me tell you, I, I know exactly what you feel like. I've been there as well. And, and so what happens is when we, the more that you think about the fear, the more, the, the, the bigger it gets, in other words. It becomes overwhelming. And you know what happens nine out of ten times when I get to, uh, get to the issue the next day? Nine out of ten times, it's not nearly as big as I thought it was going to be. I see a ton of you nodding your head when I said that. You know exactly, what is that? That's fixation. And the more you focus on it here, the bigger that it gets. That's the anatomy of fear. Brothers and sisters, that's, what, that's what, what happens to us, you know. And so we become paralyzed. And no wonder we ask the question, can I trust God? Because we can't see God because we're so fixated upon the fear. All right, Scott, what does this have to do with acknowledging reality? It's this. Contra religion. Vent to the Lord. Acknowledge the fact that you're scared. One of the things that some of you know, I'm a bit of a cinemaphile, and especially with historical Genre and and what one of the things I've noticed in the last thirty to forty years, which is a breath breath of fresh air, you know, in a lot of war movies. Like prior to I'd say the, the John Wayne era, or into the John Wayne era, it was sort of like you got to be big and strong and never let them see a sweat. But what you've seen in cinema in the last thirty to forty years, both in television and film, is a switch. And what often you'll see is a situation: it's the night of the battle, or it's it's the night before the battle, and you'll see that private come to come to the major or to the sergeant and say, Sarge, I'm scared to death. We're going in tomorrow. I'm scared to death. And what you'll see is the sergeant will say, me too. It takes courage. We've got to go in with courage tomorrow. But I'm scared as well. That's beautiful. You see, that's the place where God wants to work. It's not in saying, I've got this. I can handle this. It's saying, God, I don't have this. That's what David does. David says, I don't have any strength here. Listen, God works in your weakness. He delights and he loves to work in the place of your weakness where you cry out to him. And you say, I am scared to death. Let me tell you what not to do. Don't become an optimist. The answer to fear is not to become an optimist. What is optimism? Optimism is a false imprint on reality. All right, Scott, what does that mean? Uh, I was reading a Harvard Business Review article yesterday. I don't normally do that, but uh, I was just intrigued with what were people saying about optimism. And the article is about the failure of optimism for entrepreneurs. And what it noted there was that when entrepreneurs uh, have failure, and that's what entrepreneurship is about, is experiencing a lot of failure to start something. And, and when they and said entrepreneurs typically don't do well in their next um, uh, entrepreneurship if they don't recognize the causes of failure. The Harvard Business Review article said that most people say, it wasn't my fault. Uh, it was just bad luck. You know, and, uh, and I've got what it takes, and it's going to be better next time. This is that robs you of living in reality, is what the Harvard Business Review Journal said. And I think that's so good for us as Christians to hear. We must live in reality. Optimism is not the answer, nor is pessimism. There's no hope in the world. The answer is realism, Christian realism, and that's what David's doing here. He's saying, I am surrounded. It's not good right now. This is what I'm up against. That leads to the second thing. That is to remember, we are part of a greater reality, contra 
secularism. Look at verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So David has moved from one fixation, as it were, or one temptation to be fixated upon the fear to a new fixation. His eyes are now on the Lord. And he quite literally almost becomes fixated, fixed upon seeing what God has done for him. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is this. And it says, you are a shield around me. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first read this, I was thinking about kind of like a jousting night. It was kind of the shield that you put your arm through right there. Have you ever been to the Renaissance Festival? You probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, but you can probably picture that little hand shield that you're, you're wearing, right? Well, that's not what the shield is. Remember, it says here, you are a shield around me, about me. Okay, this is a different kind of shield. This is more like if you've ever watched a series on the Vikings, you know, television or a movie, it's called the shield wall, right? And so the shield wall is much more powerful. Why? Because it's not one shield, it's all these shields. And sometimes you'll see this where, where it becomes not just a wall, but it becomes a circle. And it allows, and it literally it was a movement that, that you could do in a battle where you were surrounded. And so you could go in surrounded by these shields. And it gave you protection as you went in. But let me tell you, here's the truth of that. And I think this is why David says, you are a shield around me. David doesn't say here, oh, God, you're going to take me out of this mess. Oh, nothing to fear here. No danger, No. No, if you are in a shield wall, if you're a shield around me, that means that you're in the midst of a battle. It means that you're in the midst of a war with things that want to take your life. With an enemy that wants to grind you into the ground. That's what David is saying here. He says, but, but you are a shield around me. Which means I'm threatened. The, the danger is real. You know, if, you want to, if you want to see how real the danger is for being a Christian. Just this afternoon, take 10 minutes to Google a couple words. Christian and persecuted church. And you will see that the level of danger for being a Christian, we've got nothing on what they experience in so many other places around the world. Where, like, I was just reading an article just, just a few days ago in Nigeria and just how the persecution is increasing at an exponential rate in Nigeria because of radical Islam. This is real. This is the real world. And these are people who, who, have to, who don't know if they're going to have a next meal. They don't know if they're going to live another day. These are your brothers and your sisters. As I like to remind us here at City Church, we are not American Christians. We're part of a global family. And so it's helpful and healthy to remember our brothers and sisters in this way. And let me tell you, I read over and over again in these stories, will say, but God is a shield around me. And they're not living in la-la land. They know that they may die, but they know this. They won't be snuffed out. That's the difference. You can take my life, but I won't be snuffed out. This is so important because let me, let me bring this home to us in a modern world. Like, we don't have to face that, but let me tell you what we do have to face, especially as, as Christians in an urban environment living in 2023 and beyond. And that is... Loss of our reputation, okay? Loss of our reputation. This is a real deal. Like, you've got a third eye. You look weird, you sound weird if you confess Christ openly. If you, if you profess Him in a way that says, would you join me in that? People look at you as if you are strange. It's hard. Let's be honest. It is hard. It is hard. I, I, I feel this for my children. I feel this for, for the next generation, how difficult it is to be a Christian today. But listen to how David handles 
his loss or the threat. It's in verse 4 where he, he says, I cried out to you and you answered me from your holy hill. Now the holy hill, what was that? That was the, the place of God's presence on earth. It was the temple in Jerusalem. It says, I cried out to you and from the temple, from your presence, you answered me. And what was he doing? He was saying, I heard a proclamation. I heard a proclamation that says, I have a better reputation. And, I, I, and, that, and then he goes on to say there, he says, and you are my glory, the lifter of my head. You know, if you're a warrior like David, because David was a warrior king, normally your glory is on the battlefield. But David knows that he has no glory on the battlefield. David knows that if it was up to him and his strength, it's not enough. David won't survive. He's, he's got too many enemies surrounding him. He says, so God, you must be my glory. You must be the lifter of my head. You have to be my identity. Glory in the ancient world was your everything. He said, you are my everything in the midst of that. Now, I want to show you as a result of that. As we're all saying, you are my glory. You are my shield around me. Let me show you how practical this is. This is the part when you get to verses 5 and 6, we say, oh my gosh, how good it would be to experience this. Listen to verses 5 and 6. After the assault, after everything he's up against, he says this, I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. Think about what I was just saying earlier about how, what, what do we experience when we know conflict's coming? We've got to go home to our parents, right? <laughs> you know, go home to see them, and it's a and that's a fraught world for us, for many of us. We've got to deal with something in our family, in our marriage. We've got and, and again, we 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 fixate, we perseverate, those sorts of things. And what does David do? David said, "I slept like a baby." How many of you, in hearing that, would say, oh my gosh, I want that sort of life? Remember, David literally is facing physical death. David is the king of Israel, and he's lost his kingship. He's lost his job, as it were. David is in a really bad place, and that's putting it nicely. And David slept like a baby. Why? That's the question, isn't it? How is it possible to sleep like a baby in light of what he's experienced. Well, it's in this. He remembers. See, he remembers who God is. And that's the thing for us as Christians that we need to remember. See, when you fixate upon the fear, when you fixate upon the thing that's right in front of you, you can't see God. And when you can't see God, you can't remember. And when you can't remember, well, you can't remember all the things that he has done for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, God has already done the most remarkable thing of all. He's taken you from eternal death to eternal life. And so whatever it is that you face, whatever the assault is, I know it is big and it feels big. Let me tell you, it is nothing compared to the mighty warrior of our God and what he will do for you on your behalf. And what I mean by that, again, is not that he's going to save you from, from, the, from the, the marriage that's that's going south and sideways in a hurry. That he's not going to save you from, from a career that's tanking. It's not that he's, I'm not saying all that. He, he might allow you to go through all that. But he will not allow you to be snuffed out. Your existence is secure. Who are you? Your daughter. Your son. In whom he is well pleased. How do we know that? Well, it says here, salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember verse 2, it said, you're beyond salvation. This is a taunt, by the way, from the enemy. He's saying, your, your God is not enough for you, is what he's saying there. But then he, at the very end, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, the key here for us as Christians is to think about our salvation. 
Now, how do we do that? Well, we see we have something that David didn't. David is told in the book of Hebrews that David was looking forward by faith to being redeemed by God. In spite of his sin, in light of his sin, he was looking forward to redemption from the Lord. But what do we know as followers of Christ? We have Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to to ruminate on just for a second with me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, what was he doing? He was praying as well. And David says here, God, you are a shield around me. As I go into battle, I have confidence. Despite the fearful, I have confidence. What did Jesus experience? We know this from one of the gospel accounts, that he was in such terror that as he began to pray, he sweated drops of blood. Now, that is medically extreme. It is possible for that to happen. And the only way it's possible is to be in such a state of extreme fear and terror. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus was fully God, but he's fully human. And what he experienced on the night of the cru- as he prepared for the crucifixion was extreme fear. And yet he said, yet not my will, but yours. And then what does he do? The next day, he goes in the battle, but here's the difference. David goes in shielded. Jesus did not. Jesus went in the battle without his shield. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, why was he unshielded? Why? So that he could go to the cross so that you and I would be shielded in the battles that we face. Don't you see? This is why, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, this is why we can look at our fear and we don't have to screw up enough courage to say, well, it's up to me to figure this out, optimism, whatever. But we can say, God, I'm afraid, but I trust you because I know you the way that David knew you. And this is where it ends. This is the last thing we move. How do we move? Prayer. This whole thing is a prayer. All the Psalms are prayers. And so in one sense, the whole thing is about prayer. But listen to verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for, for you strike all my men, enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, I want you to see a couple things in here. Number one, prayer is about movement towards God. So I want you, we're going to talk about two movements here as we close. Prayer is about movement towards God. This whole thing is a movement. But in specifically here in verses 7 and 8, he says, In light of who you are, light of my circumstances, but then in light of who you are, now arise, O Lord, get up on my behalf. Be a warrior on my behalf. And he says here something that that makes a lot of modern people very uncomfortable. He says, break the teeth of the wicked. Now, most commentators will say this is a metaphor for silence the wicked. If you don't have teeth, you can't speak normally. (laughs) Silence the wicked. This is a metaphor. He's saying, you must do this. This is no vigilante, by the way. This is, no, this is a, a man who says, you must do this on my behalf because I don't have the strength, I don't have the power. power. You are the warrior, so do this on my behalf here. But in the process, he's saying, silence the enemy. You have the power to do this. So part of what prayer is is saying, God, you have the power. In the midst of my fear right now, I need to remind myself that whatever it is that I face is not nearly as big as you are. That you have the power to silence my enemy. But here's the second thing. And it's actually not here in this psalm. Now, this sounds maybe a bit scary for me to say this, uh, but I'm going to add something to the psalm here. And that is this. You move towards your enemy. Now, how can I say that? Well, it's the same reason that, that we interpret every Old Testament passage through the lens of the New Testament, specifically through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. What do we learn from Jesus? Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, what does it say? Love your enemy. And then, then later on, as he's on the cross, remember 
What does he say there? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then Paul picks up on this. And in particular, I want to read just a couple of verses from Ephesians 6. This is in preparation for the, the, the persecution uh, there in the church of Ephesus. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And listen to this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. What is he saying there? Paul was someone who was assaulted all day long. And Paul knows this, that the true enemy is the evil one that stands behind flesh and blood. And I think that when you recognize that, when you live in a world where you said this world is not all there is, because if this world is all there is, there are no spiritual powers. And your enemy is your flesh and blood. The reason why it's so hard to forgive, why it's so hard to build trust and those sorts of things. But, but what I think we can say here is that when we are assaulted by the enemy, we get picture, we get placement, we understand, man, this is what is going on. There's spiritual powers behind all this. And so it allows us to say, as Jesus did, Father, forgive them for they know not what they did. And I, I can only tell you this in closing. When I've been assaulted by people over the years, and, and I've been really angry. Some of you know that. I've been I've experienced a lot of anger. You know, and I, I'm not going to pretend I'm a saint and, and tell you that I've been able to do this right away. Sometimes it's taken weeks, sometimes months. In one case, it took years. But I, I found that, that eventually I was able to remember what was true about me with Jesus. That I was once his enemy. And then I was able to begin to pray for my enemy despite the assault. And despite the fact that they, they never owned it, those sorts of things. And what I found was it softened my heart. That's all I can tell you. It softened my heart. And I didn't feel the, the, the anger pervading through me anymore. It didn't mean that I, I rebuilt the relationship. Sometimes it's not possible this side of heaven. Sometimes you shouldn't rebuild a relationship, often with someone, especially in a position of abuse and power. But what I am going to tell you here is that you can pray this way and pray through your fear and find yourself able to move towards your enemy. Because it's the gospel that drives us more than anything else. And so I, I think that if, if David were here one day, we'll be able to ask him about this. I think he would say, yes, that's where this concludes. And so my prayer for you today, if you're currently facing an assault, you're facing this demanding struggle of fear in your life, that you would know that God is for you, he's not against you. That he'll be shield around you as you, as you go into battle and have the confidence to know that you will not be snuffed out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. The best of psychology today is nothing on what you've already said. At the, when psychology is at its best about our inner world, our inner self, ultimately it's pointing to the truth of your word. Ultimately, it's pointing to what thousands of years ago your servant David already told us. That fear is real. We must acknowledge it. But it is not the everything. And yet you are greater than the things arrayed against us. Father, thank you for your promise that our lives will not be snuffed out regardless of how real the assault is, how real the fear is. So, Father, deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Remind us that you win. That is the resurrection. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now we continue in worship. We're going to do through confession and just